lot of Pesukim on uh, Yom Kippur. I keep resurfacing and coming back and repeat them again and again. And particularly the Pesukim of Slichot. Um, and every davening after the Piyotim, and certainly in Musaf after the Avodah, you start to say Slichot. And some Tzilos have actual Slichot, Marev and Shacharis and Musaf we add. Actually, Musaf has Slichot. It's the Yerzei Lebanon, or in this case, the Ten Martyrs, Yerzei Lebanon, as we see on Tishapah. And on Shacharis and Yeshiva, we add Slichot just to have something to say with Yerki Omigo. And there's a preface to Shmakolengo, which quotes a whole bunch of Pesukim. A lot of them are natural, about national gula and redemption, but some of them are about shuvah. So I want to talk about four different psukim that you're going to say at least five times in your kippur, and because they're at the end of davening, sometimes we tend to blow by them very quickly at the end of the shmonesh, at the end of the chazar sashats. But they each um, they each accentuate different facets of shuvah. So if you take a look at source number one, it's a pasuk from Yeshaya, Machisi of it's a pasuk we're going to say five times at the end of each davening. And the themes, or in some cases, even the phrases and the clauses will resurface throughout the Piyotim, throughout some of the other parts of davening. So that's the first pasuk. The second pasuk is source number two. These are all in sequence. Third pasuk is, again from Yeshaya, these are all three from Yeshaya so far. So those are three psukim from Yeshayi that are going to be said actually that way, in that sequence, in that order. And the fourth pasuk is on the last page. It's actually a pasuk from the pasuk four in the second page. So as much as time allows, we'll see if we can just get a sense of what each of these four psukim are trying to evoke about Shiva. So the first passage from Yeshayim and Dalit talks about a Kodesh Baruch Hu machisi, eliminating, probably uh, erasing, or um, ignore, not really ignoring, but limchot means to erase, to eradicate our sins. I'm skipping the word that's highlighted. And come back to me because I will redeem you. Now what's interesting about this passage, and a lot of things that are interesting, but the two things are the parable or the association with clouds. I will eliminate or erase your sins like a cloud. And the second interesting part of the sentence is the word gula appearing within the context of tshuva. What does gula have to do with tshuva? What is tshuva in lai? So when it comes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu eliminating our sins like clouds, we have other imageries and other associations of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu rids us of our sins. He cleanses us with water, with Zarakdeh, and Mayim he serves as our mikvah, mikvah Yisrael Hashem, Moshiach B'Yisrael. He washes our, our nishamas, obviously, not our bodies, like wool. In the Adimu Katolak, I'll make it white, like white wool. So many different images of a Kodesh Baruch Hu cleansing us. This is a very, very intriguing one. What does it mean a Kodesh Baruch Hu will eliminate our sins like a cloud? So first of all, the first question is, what role does the cloud play? Is the cloud the eliminator? Or is the cloud the idea of being eliminated? Is Hashem saying, I will take a cloud, or in a cloud-like way, I'll erase your sins? Or is Hashem saying, I'll remove your sins just like a passing cloud? A cloud comes, and then passes. It's not permanent, it's transient. So is the cloud the remover, or is the cloud the removee, as we would say? Is our sin being removed by a cloud? We meant to think of our sins as a cloud being removed. So, if the cloud is the remover, 
So probably connotes one of two um, issues. Number one, <coughs> a cloud has humidity and condensation. So in that respect, it's part of that whole watery process of being cleansed, of having water thrown on us from heaven, and and of a mikvah. But more importantly, when a cloud removes something, it doesn't really remove it, right? It doesn't really remove it now, it just obscures it now. So unlike some of the other imageries that we ask Yaakarish Baruch for, to cleanse, to purify, to remove, to destroy, to... And true is a multifaceted process. We don't come with one voice, because if we did, we'd fail. We realize we're inadequate, we realize we're incompetent, and therefore we're looking, we're searching for all sorts of... I spoke last week in, in the girls' program about the slicha on the second night it starts off with Machnisei Rachamim. Well, we say it every night at the end of sleep. So a lot of people, myself included, don't say it. It's based on the Ramban. This is you really should be praying to angels. You should be praying directly to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And even if you're praying to angels to help you daven, that's also pretty dangerous. It's also pretty heretical. So the point is, those who do say you shouldn't take it literally. You shouldn't take it seriously. If you're asking Malachim to facilitate your prayer. It just sets a tone that you just can't show up and daven like it's your license, just assume your tefillahs will be accepted, everything is like clockwork, and you're looking for solutions, you're looking for, you're looking for help, you're looking for assistance, you realize this is not an easy process, this is not a simple or facile moment of standing in front of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, confessing, recognizing, acknowledging your chatayim, isn't just davening that should be removed. So, it's like, uh, in Hebrew it's in Melitza, it's just like a poetic, personalization, association, as if Malachim were going to take my tefillahs, because I really need them to do If they would be empowered to do so, I'd really need their help. That's how futile, and that's how um, helpless I feel. So, when it comes to tshuva, we ask for a lot of things, and not all of them are the ideal, but sometimes they're more practical, and, and we feel more comfortable asking for them. So, I say, Kodesh Baruch Hu, don't eliminate my time. They're too much to be eliminated. That would be arrogant. That would be audacious. Just ignore them, distort them, conceal them, like a cloud conceals a mountain. We'll say this in Davani, I'll call Ahava. I want your love to cover. I'm not asking you to, to eliminate. You can't really eliminate sins. But I just want you to love me so much that you don't even look at them. You choose to ignore them. You look elsewhere or it's concealed by love. As we know, in many of our relationships, sometimes it's about um, overcoming things which are us, and sometimes it's about accepting them and letting love um, offset them. So in our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when we say, Machisi it's a very bold and new statement. We're not asking for the sin to be removed. We're asking for the sin to be covered like a cloud. Machisi So if the cloud is the remover of our sins, it probably has to do with one of those two imagery. The cloud is being very watery. The cloud is being a concealer, not a remover. And also, of course, the cloud being the only image in Tanakh of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Ananakavot. So to a degree, Tayer Hashem Banan, it's certainly more divine more holy than washing wool or sprinkling water. It's a Kodesh Baruch who's, ironically, is the only image of Hashem. It's not an image. It's the only image in Tanakh of Hashem. It's a distortion of visibility because if you think you can see Hashem, you can't see Him. If you know you can see Him, then you see Him because you're seeing the, the only thing man can see, which is nothing, which is a cloud. So, that's first of all. If the cloud is, and it's unclear from the Mepharshim whether the cloud is a remover or the cloud is a parable to the sins being removed. But if the cloud is the pace and the rapidity by which sins are removed. HaKadosh Baruch remove my sins as fast as he would remove a cloud, rather than cover them in cloud-like fashion, cloak them. But I want you to remove them like a cloud. So it means a couple things. It means a cloud dissipating, which is a very powerful image for tefillah. 
the Gemara says in Brachos, Tachlamet Bey, Source Bey's, Rava Logasar Tanisa Biyamadeva. When Rava decided to make a Tanis, today was a Tanis. In those days, the Tanios were much more flexible. They weren't set in the calendar. <laughs> Based on the national state of affairs, went to make a Tanis. But if he walked outside, it was cloudy that day. He didn't make a Tanis. So if he lived in England, he probably won't have too many Tanios. But he did. He lived in Babel. And Babel wasn't that cloudy. It was more or less our climate. So if it was cloudy, he decided not to make a Tanis. Sounds strange. Rava was a meteorologist. Why would he decide on a time based on whether it was cloudy or not? So he said, Mishum Shenem, where he quotes the Pasuk in Eicha, which I put on Source Aleph, Sakosa be'anan lach me'var Hashem threatens us that I will be immune, I will be insensitive, I will be unheeding to your tefillos, and I'll encircle myself in the cloud. And I won't let the tefillos pass through. Which you can imagine was very traumatic, because the cloud was always the sign of Hashem's presence. And now people who were accustomed to the cloud, now saw the cloud, it was an inversion of imagery. As a blocker, as a barrier, I will uncloud, I will enshroud myself in the cloud, and will not let your tefillos come through. So Rabbi saw that as an omen, Rabbi saw that at the very least as a multimedia deterrent. And how you get a when you walk outside, it's all cloudy, and it's right in your faces, we say, so obvious, Hashem isn't accepting your tefillos, even though British Barber doesn't really need clouds. But from a human perspective, it would be overwhelming, it would be devastating to walk outside, and all the time it's in Davin, and there are clouds on top of you. And he quoted, he quotes Rebbe Lazar, Rebbe Lazar, Miyom Shachar Beis Hamikdash, Nisvika Chomas Barzel Ben Yisrael Avinavim Shavashemayim. Different image. Since the day the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, an iron curtain divides the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And Yisrael, it's very difficult for Artefilos to get through. So whether it's an iron curtain, or as Rabbi said, a cloud based on the Pasuk and Eicha, the dissipating cloud is a very powerful imagery of Tefilos coming through. Because the cloud is the barrier. The cloud is the preventer. If our sins are becoming dissipated, are evaporating like a cloud evaporates. So it's not just that our sins are being removed, but tefillah is being enabled. The pathways of tefillah are now flowing. The cloud is dissipated, and Akarish Baruch was now available for tefillahs. So if the sins are evaporating because of a cloud, that could be one thing. I wrote down something else here. Um, probably another issue may have to do with the fact that a cloud dissipates very quickly. It's, it's more rapid, less fierce, less of a process in cleansing the wool. And this may evoke an image of an immediate tshuva versus a process of tshuva. And there's different types of tshuva. Sometimes tshuva happens in a moment. The Gemara says that if, um, if someone, if you see a Tamachachim sinning, you can assume the next day he really did tshuva. It's a question for whether you can make him an aid, whether you can make him a kedushin. You can assume he really did tshuva that night. And that Gemara highlights that tshuva can happen over one night, it can happen over one second. So the dissipating cloud is not as lengthy, it's not as prolonged or protracted as cleaning wall or cleansing wall or scraping wall or some of the other imageries that we have. So this is the first part of the Pasuk, Machisi Ka'av Pesha'echa Fecha'anan Chatosecha, without discriminating between the two types of clouds, the Av, the Anan, the Pesha'in, the Chatayim. It's a very new and fresh image that you really don't come across in many different contexts. And all of a sudden, it adds to your thoughts. The second part of the Pasuk is, Shuva Elaiki Yaltiha. Come back to me, because I am redeeming you. What does redemption have to do with, with Shuva? So obviously a lot, obviously a lot. First of all, the national level, um, it's a very interesting Mahalakas in the Gemara Sanhedrin. The first Gaulus ended even without Amisul during Shuva. They were so intransigent, they must even come back to Eretz Yisrael, and still Hashem redeemed them. Because you don't find this mass Shuva. The other thing you do find is that when they come back to Eretz Yisrael, all of a sudden there's a mass confessional because they've all married 
Gentile women to try to cleanse the community and try to filter through all the riffraff that had come back from Buffalo. But that was subsequent to the return. It didn't really trigger the return. And that's based on the Tochacha and how it unfolds in Parshish Bechokosai. There are two Tochachas in the Torah. One is in Bechokosai, one is in Kisavo. The Rabban says the first Tochacha corresponds to the first Golis. The second Tochacha corresponds to the second Golis. The first Tochacha ends with the Zacharites Bisi Yaakov, Rafis Bisi Yitzchak, Rafis Bisi Avraham Neskar, Ve'aretz Neskar. So it says, I'll remember the bris and I'll take you back. The second Tochacha just ends, and in Kisavo you're stuck in Golis. The conclusion to that is only in Parshish Nitzavar, where it says, you'll do tshuva, v'tzar lecha, v'shaftar Hashem melukecha. So there's a very fierce machokis in the Gemara Sanhedrin, whether the second galus will end, even without tshuva, or the second galus will only end if Amisol does tshuva. It's a very scary prospect. The Rambam Paskins, like that shita, that if Amisol doesn't do tshuva, the galus will end. But he puts in a caveat. There's a promise that Amisol will do tshuva. It's a prophecy that, as strange as it sounds and as far fetched as it seems, I mean, so it will ultimately be some massive event, some revelation of sorts that will turn everyone's hearts towards Akadosh Baruch Hu, and everyone ultimately will perform tshuva. But tshuva, as a prelude, as a necessary trigger, as a necessary condition to Geula, is something the Rambam believes very deeply that before Geula comes, many of us feel like Akadosh Baruch Hu will reveal himself through redemption. And that redemptive revelation will cause the second Olam and Malchashana, But it's really inverted. The Vieda Kalpal Kiyatapalta, at least at a national level, where Jews are realizing that Baruch Hu, is a prerequisite for Chuba. Now that may be divinely triggered or divinely engineered. It may not be something that naturally will occur. But it will occur first Chuba and then Gula. So when Hashem says, Shuva Elai Kiki Alticha, Hashem is saying, I can only redeem you. Ki, so to speak, means then I'll redeem you. Shuva Eli, Ki Gyalticha. Then I will redeem you at a national level. At a personal level, Geula highlights, I think, two things about Shuva. I'm not have enough time to talk about each. One is that when a person is full of chait, there's a narrowing, there's a shrinkage, there's a bondage, there's an imprisonment. We call it a habit or addiction or routine. We don't want to be that harsh or that coarse. We, we don't feel like we have our freedom. <coughs> Ultimately, tshuva is meant to be a liberating force. It's meant to... That's why the Rambam places Hilchus tshuva in... Or actually, the opposite. He places the laws of Bechir Chavshed into Hilchus tshuva. You'd think that Hilchus tshuva would be two or three prakim. The Rambam has ten prakim dedicated to tshuva. And many of them, most of them, talk about Bechir Chavshed. Because tshuva is a expression of our Bechir Chavshed. Man is the only creature in this world that has freedom of choice. We exercise that freedom of choice about everything under the sun, about where to go, how to work, whom to marry, where to live. Every day we make decisions. But the harshest and most courageous time we make a decision that we choose who we are, and how to re-sculpt ourselves, and how to rebuild ourselves. Because then we are not just the author of that decision, we're also the object of that decision. It's hard to be author and object together. So I can you look in yourself, and I, I can decide to make chicken. I'm looking at the chicken and it roasts to make a decision. How can I decide to reshape myself? It takes a lot of honesty, a lot of courage, a lot of self-awareness, a lot of intuition. So for the Rambam, tshuva was just a bold implementation of the chirachachas. And when we perform tshuva, we're releasing ourselves, we're not just employing our freedom, but we're releasing ourselves from the imprisonment of chayyid prisons. Us. We feel that we act in ways that if we don't feel like it's us, it's, it's, it's ourselves, or our inner voice, our inner selves acting. We just feel drawn, we feel caught, we feel trapped, sometimes we feel addicted. It doesn't have to be harsh addictions to drugs or alcohol, it's to be addictions to behavioral patterns, 
weaknesses, inabilities, character traits, and we're performed trigger, we release ourselves. So probably the most powerful expression of that, aside from this Pasuk in Yeshaya, is the Pasuk again we say so often, in the end of Shir HaMa'la, source Gimel, Yachel Yisrael HaShem, Kiyem HaShem HaChesed, Narbei Mofedus, V'hu Yifteh Yisrael Mikolavon HaSav, literally he will redeem us, as you redeem a captive, Pijam Shavuyim. He will redeem us from our sins. What does it mean? Redeem us. Mocha, we know what it means. Salah, we know what it means. Kaferno, we know what it means. Tara, we think we know what it means. But all of a sudden, a whole new verb. And here the pidyon is from chayit, not from bondage, not from galus. There's a shrinkage, there's a tightness, there's a lack of freedom, a lack of latitude. And this passage captures the fact that tshuva is liberating. The truth is, tshuva as a liberating force is not ready to shofar, symbolizes, because the more extensive discussion of shofar in the Torah is not about Rosh Hashanah. The more extensive discussion of shofar is in Parshish Bahar about Yovah. And there the shofar is a liberating sound. The Kortem Jorabar is the Chayosh Vag, sound the shofar, and the slaves know they can go home, and the fields go back to their owners because it's Yovah. Shofar was born on Yom Kippur of Yovah. And most of the laws of shofar are learned from the shofar of Yovah to the shofar of Rosh Hashanah. Because there are only two words in the Torah describing the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Truah or Zichron Truah. That's all. All the other words are in Parshat Bahar about the shofar. It doesn't even say the word shofar of Rosh Hashanah. The word shofar doesn't appear. Just the word Truah. The word shofar appears in Bahar about Yoga. So it prompted Chazal to comment. I, I quoted the Pesukim in Bahar, Avartha Shofar Truah, B'chorosh Hashvi, B'chorosh etc. And then Chazal and the say, that Rosh Hashanah, again, my apologies to the any southern hemisphere women here, people from the southern hemisphere. So, the northern hemisphere, right, the old question, why do we eat a pomegranate on Rosh Hashanah? So now that you live in Israel, you know that the real answer is not because of how many seeds it has. Well, it's a nice symbolism. And the fact that even a pomegranate has a lot of seeds and a pomegranate has a phonetic association with Rishayim, and Rishayim also have a lot of mitzvahs as a Gemara. But the reason we eat a pomegranate on Rosh Hashanah is because that's when it ripens. <laughs> the last three fruits to ripen are olives, grapes, and pomegranates because they're the most complex structures. Wheat and barley ripen olives, right? The first korbanos, right? around pesticide. So these are the final fruits. And we eat it to signify that it's not incidental that Rosh Hashanah occurs at the end of the harvest season. We finish our harvest, and then we come in from the fields, we stop working in the fields, and we start working ourselves. And how do you pull people in from the fields to stop working? You blow a chauffeur. In our cell phones, you blew a loud sound. And that told people to stop working. In the days of Chazal, every Arab shop is in Yushalayim. You blow the chauffeur to tell people to stop working. The chauffeur always had that symbolic call, stop working, and go to something else. When Shabbos stopped working in the main Shabbos, when Rosh Hashanah stopped working in the fields, and come in, and now work on yourself. For Hashanah Kippur. So the chauffeur is a liberating voice, is a liberating sound. You're no, no, no longer committed to the grapes and the olives and the pomegranates. They've all ripened. In fact, you're eating them on the table because they've ripened. Now, that's what the measure says, Sorosei, Kol Yimos Hashanah, Oskim B'Malachtam, the entire year, Sorosei, it's a measure, the Jews work with Rosh Hashanah, no plain shofars, the token, they take the shofar, they blow the shofar, and they stop working, and they come into the fields. And so the process of internal liberation is mirrored by external liberation. Externally, I'm liberated from hard labor. Now the question is, can I also be liberated from myself? Can I be emancipated from my own controlling forces? Can I be redeemed? Can I be freed? Can I be returned? 
So Ba'ula has that double entendre. On the one hand, it speaks to a national reconstitution, a national redemption, which Tshuva has to catalyze. On the other hand, it speaks to an internal redemption from imprisonment, redemption from captivity, redemption from there's a lot of Yonah, and that Yonah is also locked up, and Yonah gets born, Yonah gets freed. So this is the first pasuk, and again, the two parts of it that are very fresh, by definition, as we blow by the Sukkim, on the way is the imagery of cloud and the imagery of Gula. The second pasuk has, as is highlighted, has two elements that are, are noteworthy. One is obviously the word Anochi Anochi, and the duplication. And the second is Lamani. So here there are no imagery. Hashem is not saying, I'm going to erase your sins like, just as Anochi Anochi, whom I'll erase your sins. Lamani, for my sake. So, first of all, why the duplication of the word Anochi Anochi? So, according to Radak, which I think is important to think about for Yom Kippur, HaKefel L'chazek, to strengthen, Ratzelomer, source number base, Aniyu Shesalachti Pisham L'dor Midbar. I was the one who atoned for the Dor Midbar. V'yanochiyo Salech L'mocheh Pishaychem B'chol Dor V'dor. And I'm the one that will eliminate your sins in every generation. A lot of our davening on Yom Kippur returns back to past Bali Tshuva, in general, in particular to the Dor HaMidbar. To Bali Tshuva in general, in fact, the we said this morning, and was half asleep and half dead because of some medalia, actually, if you take a look tonight, traces each of the Bali Tshuva that are detailed in Tanakh. So it talks about Adam, and not Adam, so Kayin, and Ruvain, and Yehuda, and Moshe Samicha, and all the people of David Melech and Yonah, people of Ninveh, because Tshuva is not something we should take for granted. It's not something that should be obvious. The Medrash says that Adam bumps into Kayin. And Kayin's smiling, and Adam says, why are you so happy? So Kayin says, because I killed Hethel. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. So Adam says, what was your sin? So Kayin says, well, I did Shuvah, and Hashem basically took off half. And Adam says, what? You did Shuvah, Hashem eliminated half of your punishment. I never knew that could happen. I guess that's killing himself. I, I should have done Shuvah. And he writes a psalm. This is the Yom He wrote that parak in town. And it just highlights the fact that you don't really know he didn't really know that you could do tshuva. It's something that we take for granted. It's something which um, is not obvious, and it should be obvious. The more that you assume it, the more that you're not performing tshuva. It's, it's an irony. If you assume it's obvious that it's not really true, that it's clinical and practiced and sterile. If you reach the point that you can't imagine doing tshuva, then you do tshuva, then it's real tshuva. Because then you're really facing, honestly, you're facing the magnitude of your chatari. And basically, the two events that put Shuvah on the map, two great sins that put Shuvah on the map for people. I mean, it starts evolving in the Tower. But number one is the Dharma Midbar, the Egel, and then the Meraglim. And number two is Dharma Midbar. The Egel and the Meraglim create Shuvah in the Torah. And the Kurdish Baruch Hu gives Moshe the Yedgyu Omidos, and Moshe starts davening for Yedgyu Omidos, and the Shem Sisolach, the Yedgyu Omidos. The second event is when Dharma Midbar is abominable, Chayu Bacheva, and then he decides to share his feelings with the whole world. And writes 150 Prakim. And he's very conscious of the fact that he's writing for a world audience. He's sharing some very, very mortifying and embarrassing feelings because he wants to teach people, this is all right, you know, don't feel bad, don't feel low, don't feel ashamed. Everyone has it, everyone feels the same way. Now I'm sharing it with you. Those are the two major events in the history of Shuvah. So we're going to return a lot in Yom Kippur to the Dar Midbar. And we're going to think about their chait, and we're going to say there's a whole, there's a whole pit, a beautiful pit, the night of Yom Kippur. V'yomar salachti, every peer will end, say salachti, say salachti, answer from Shemayim salachti, scream from Shemayim salachti. 
We want Hashem to say the word that He said to the Jewish people, Salachti Kivarech Hashem told Moshe, I will forgive them like you asked, Salachti Kivarech. So returning to the Torah Midbar, and according to the Redak, that double Lashon Anochi Anochi sounds like Eyeh Asher Eyeh, continuum. I was there earlier, I'm here for you now, puts us right into their shoes and gives us the confidence that if they could do Shuvah, as terrible as their Chatayim were, the Gemara says it's a hedron that they lost their share in the world to come. And the Gemara says, no, no, they can't because they're Hashem's first bride. And they the Pasuk we said, in Musaf, Zacharti Lachasin Urayich, Amas Kilusayich, as much as your first bride insults you and hates your feelings, you can never get past your first love. But that's a very powerful moment to go back to the Dora Midbar and to imagine that if they were so terrible and so much rebellion and blew so much of Jewish history and still they were forgiven, then there's hope for us. So even if you don't take the word daf literally and say that the first Anochi refers to the Dora Midbar, the second Anochi refers to us, there's certainly a continuum. It certainly has a lot of resemblance to the Ehiyashu area. The Rishon HaKadosh Baruch Hashem is actually telling us, I'm the one who's been there in the past. I'm the Rav Slichel Tubal HaRachamim. Kiyata Rav Slichel Tubal HaRachamim. We say that a lot in our Slichos. Kiyata Rav Slichel Tubal HaRachamim. And we're going to talk a lot about HaKadosh Baruch Hu offering truth in the past because it comforts us. It comforts us to know that our grandfather's stirring him Kippur and said, Shalom, no, okay, no, okay, let's say no. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, my eyes are a little tired. What's the intro to It's a little unfair for us to call our fathers and mothers sinners. I don't know the sinners, but it gives us a sense that this is not something that we are entering fresh, scared, blind, unknown, uncertain. And truth is always teetering between those two. It's teetering between underconfidence and confidence. And if the underconfidence gets too heavy, then despair sets in and tshuva is blocked. And if despair and if confidence gets too heavy, then tshuva becomes sterile and, and practiced and rehearsed and it's not real and, and authentic. It's never going to be a balanced scale. It's always going to be up and down and up and down. And I'm going to show the things you feel confident about when you dive into Kodesh Hopefully not about anything about you, but about Svosavos, Prisavos, Eretz Yisrael, maybe your potential, what can I do? No one feels confident based on their performance. There's a lot of underconfidence and frustration and anger and a lot of those emotions have to be mixed and a lot of that mixing isn't uh, like chicken soup but it's just alternating different feelings and different times. So when you say Anochi Anochi Hashem it's not something you and me it's something that's happened before and you're stepping into that process. Um, now, the second part of the sentence is well, even beforehand before the second part of the sentence Anochi is also powerful because the Kodesh Baruch Hu is breaking through anything institutional. Um, I didn't quote this Mishnah here, but there's a beautiful Mishnah of the Akiva. If you understand the historical context, it's really very powerful. The Akiva comes and has this famous statement, Don't worry, Hashem will throw water on you from Shemayim, and Hashem will be your mikvah. But he was talking to people that saw the face of Mikdash and saw it burnt. The Akiva lived through the Chorban. So we live in a post-world Chorban, and our landscape of Yom Kippur is pretty much predetermined, shul, kittel, hunkering down, introspective, quiet, pensive, contemplative. The people in the Beis HaMikdash was a very different experience. It was collective and communal and national. Everyone gathered in throngs in the Beis HaMikdash. They're spectators, basically. There's very little dominant that went on. 
Imagine coming to the base of Hashem Kippur with you. Let's say you went back in the time and you got your machzor and your shamnu and your vidoy books. <laughs> you're sitting there like this, like on a plane. You can't even open your vidoy books because you're so crushed in the people's, the throng of people. And you're saying your vidoy, everyone's looking at the coin and looking at the red ribbon and looking at the goat and looking at the, you know, not really looking that much, but it's very collective, very powerful. You don't get kapara as an individual. You get kapara because you get lost in the community. Actually, and you use kapara to Amisul and you're part of Amisul. And you're there in the base of Mikdash. You think the woman next to you is stopping too loud. You, know, you, know, you want to say, shh. That's the thing, the chatzar of the base of Mikdash. Yes, it's not shh. Everyone's screaming and all this farty women are doing their thing. <laughs> it's hard to have kavana, but the point is not really personal kavana. It's merely merging with their collective. So can you imagine losing the base of Mikdash? Two months ago, because it was burned for Tisha B'av. So it's not even something you had a chance to recover. It reminds me a lot of Ravamithal passed away. Uh, a couple of days before Tisha B'Av, uh, a couple of days before Shabbat said, it's just, we didn't even have time to process that we were going to miss him for Shabbat. I can't believe we had the time to go through that healing and trauma and catharsis. It was just, I was in Kippur, we went to Daphne, and I remember Rav Maidan got up to speak the first year before Neila, which was Ramital's famous Sicha. I was sitting next to Rabbi Gozak in the base Medrash, and we, we looked at each other, we started bursting into tears. I'm sure if my dad had a good sikhah, but neither of us could listen to it because we were just lost in some other place. How can we not hear about Natal for Neva? So how can you not have a base of Mikdash? And into that vacuum, maybe Kiva steps and says it's not about institutions and buildings and Kanyam and Red Ribbons. It's about a Kanshbar. You always have Hashem. He's always your mikvah. He's always there for you. And to a degree, that's what Yeshai is saying, even though he's not really speaking directly to a generation of Chorban. He's writing, paraphrasing Hashem, Anochi, Anochi, who moche peshecha lemani. Me. And just in case you missed it, me. says it twice. So that there are bonishalom. Bonishalom is time independent, space independent. Yes, base mikdash, no base mikdash. It's not fun, there are bonishalom. Anochi, Anochi, moche peshecha lemani. It's not just the duplication as the redox compartmentalizes one before the mikdash or one after a later history or other history. So like Rosh Baruch, we're stressing don't think about the Mikdash. Think about me. Think about the Bonu Shalom. And finding him on Yom Kippur, it won't be the same. So that's the first part of the Pasuk. Anochi, Anochi, Hu Mocheh Peshacha, Lemani. The second part of the Pasuk is uh, also interesting. Lemani. For my sake, for me. So the notion of asking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for things in life, not because we deserve it, but because of His sake and His name, that's already tried and trusted. It's already built in. Not for us. But here we're asking for kapara. So here it's a little bit more telescope, a little more specific. How exactly is it in Hashem's interest that He should forgive us? It's in His interest that Amisol should be redeemed, obviously, because our national fate reflects His presence in the soul, so that I can get, get the concept. Holocaust is bad for Hashem, and Dinah Sisol is good for Hashem in terms of his presence in this world. But how is my personal kapara? Um, it's something that's going to affect your abonashalom. So part of it is us translating it into that, is realizing, well, you know, we don't just look at the past, we also leverage the future of life, there's leverage in the future. Saying, look, okay, the past, forget about terrible X, terrible things. But I promise you, I'm going to turn it on. Next year is going to be unbelievable. I'm going to do great things. Part of our psyche is this saying, I want, to, I want to mortgage the future. I want you to forgive me for my past, 
because I've got all these future potentials that I'm going to reach. And I want you to look at that. And right, and that's why it's so important to, to see that in other people. Generally, we judge ourselves by our potential. We judge other people by their performance. That's why we're harsh about people. And we're very happy about ourselves. So we're seeing what we're going to do, what our plans are, families we're building, the jobs we're going to do, all that we're going to accomplish. We look at people. What if the person done nothing? So Shmigagi, so you know, we're very critical. And a better way, at least the even-handed, or possibly to judge yourself by your performance and other people's potential. So part of it is, like, I'm not asking egotistically. I'm not asking egocentrically. I don't need to live. I don't need to eat. I don't need to have money. I don't need... I want to continue to serve you, and maybe I haven't that well, but I'm going to use this as a springboard, and I will, and therefore say, I want to be so in sync with you that my requests ultimately become not in a... Uh, Manipulative, oh, I'm really asking for your benefit. It's really for you, right? When you punish your child, this is really for your own good. Not that we're, we're manipulating a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but we're, we're trying to bring ourselves in sync. Almost as if that synchronicity is the ultimate score, the ultimate takeaway. So that, to a degree, even if you don't forgive me, I just want to be with you. There's almost like a higher feeling. What are we really dominating on throwing in Kippur? The Kaddish Baruch Hu to forgive us, or for us to be with that Kaddish Baruch Hu? At a certain point, maybe the second blurs the first. Because if you want to be forgiven, at a certain point, you ever tell yourself, if I'm really honest about this, I don't really care if I live or die. I just want to be with a Kaddish Baruch I want to be with the Baruch Shalom. Now you decide where I should be. Should I be in Shemaim? Should I be here? And then our minds get flooded with what well, we have families and responsibilities. But if we're just you, and there weren't the world, but it were just you, what difference would it make whether you're here or there? That's a very reductive question, a very healthy question. Now the answer is our family and commitment, etc., the answers also are potential, because Alamabah is static. There's no growth. You can't really change in Alamabah. So whatever you've accomplished here, you max out. You're capped in the next world. So it really is a difference, but it's not a difference of personal interest anymore. Because if, I take it, if I've taken myself, then myself really, there's no difference where I am. It's really about the people in my life. It's really about the mitzvahs. It's really about the responsibilities I have. So that word, Lamani, really recalibrates the whole voice of tshuva, Hopefully, in a way, it's really less egocentric, because if you really break it down, maybe you'd say it should be egocentric, maybe you at some moment you really should be thinking about yourself, but all it's feel is haunted by the specter of egocentrism, and what you need, what you're asking about, which, well, give me, give me, give me, it's another way we operate in life, give me more, give me more of this, more of that. So how do you massage the egocentrism out of tefillah? How do you massage the egocentrism out of tshuva? Maybe you're not meant to, but the money's meant to begin to address that. Second of all, the money is we also want people to believe in Jew. I mentioned before, Dr. Amal's Jew is so vocal and so public and so recorded because he wants people to understand that Jew is something feasible. It's not a gimme, it's not an obvious, it's not a no-brainer. So when we say in Shira Malos, Ki Imcha Haslicha, Shira Malos, Mimakim Kasich Hashem, Shem Shema Bakali, Imavana Sishma Hashem, Ki Imcha Haslicha, Lamanti Varei. Part of that is you have forgiveness so that people will fear your ability to forgive, that you should be known as the forgiver. So here again, we're almost manipulating the above shalom, saying, oh, you know why I want you to forgive me, Jai says, the mancha, so that people will know that you forgive people. So I'm just a guinea pig, and you have to forgive me so that you can showcase to everyone that you actually forgive people. So we, we may not say that to Hashem, but Yishai says it, and since Yishai says it, we can say it. I'm going to forgive your sins for my sake. So look at the matters, and Mish basically says this. And it specifically chooses David. 
the Mahaya David Nona, source number Gimel, the Misha Nishbar, person breaks his leg, he comes to the doctor, fire off the the doctor is like really sad for him. How harsh is your wound? I feel so bad for you. So the, the patient says, I thought sadly a lie, you're upset for me. I broke my leg for you. My leg is broken for you. Because now everyone can see how great a doctor you are, that you can heal my leg. You should be happy. Listen to this. I sinned for you. Okay, so now let us sin for that. But in retrospect, you can turn it into a sin for Hashem. When you ask sinners in Shemayim, why don't you do tshuva? Okay? If you accept my tshuva, David says, they'll all agree with you, and they'll look at me, and I'll be the witness, I'll be the testimony. You forgive people. Very interesting ways to ask a Kodesh Baruch for tshuva. But again, none of them are manipulative. They were all meant to rewire our minds. It's not just a simple, Hashem, forgive me. There's a, there's a latent egocentrism in Tefillah that could be even more obtuse in Shuba. And how do we, on the one hand, not eliminate it, but on the other hand, I mean, there is a certain audacity in asking for Shuba. There's a certain chutzpah, so to speak, in asking for Shuba. Hashem wants you to have chutzpah, Hashem wants you to to go where no man's gone before, to be audacious, to be brave, to be tenacious. Hashem wants Moshe to daven ferociously on behalf of Am Yisrael. And Yeshai is basically saying that, which personalizes it, it's about me. Lemani, for my sake. What does that mean, Lemani? Here are two or three ideas what Lemani means. So people will believe in Tshuva so that I can continue to serve you. That's really what I'm asking for Tshuva. So it becomes about you, not about me. That takes you to make it supplements true, makes it more sublime, rather than just uh, I make off like a bandit. Okay, I got, I'm going to be young, you know. Okay, I did it. <laughs> Back to my real life, but that it should be a process that's educating and that's elucidating, rather than just a, an artificial release. I took care of it. I'm clean. I'm white. Now let me go back to my routine. All of a sudden, I've learned about myself and learned about my life and it added values. And... Okay, so that's pasuk number two. Pasuk number three. Um, has a few interesting elements to it. The Chunah Be'Bachachayimarshe, very interesting beginning. Come, let's uh, let's debate, let's uh, go to litig- let's litigate. The Chunah Be'Bachachayimarshe. So it starts off very threatening. Where the Chunah Be'Bachachayimarshe. Im Yuchatarechem Kasharim Kasharag Yabinu Im Yadimu Chatola Katsemri Hiu. So I'll start with the end, which I forgot to underline in, in boldface. This classic, classic uh, wool turning into uh, white wool from red wool, um, red worms turning into, actually it's, it's Shunem is probably red worms or, or a certain type of a red turning into snow, and Katala is a different type of a worm turning into fleece, white fleece, etc. So I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but it's interesting to think about the difference between snow and wool. What's the difference between asking for our sins to be white and like the snow, as opposed to be white and like the cleansed wool? So think about that and associate those two with the cloud, because they're all very different requests. Treat our sins with the cloud, treat our sins with whitening edge, and treat our sins like snow, or put snow in our sins. Um, why is chayt always, 
why is it always color is red? Right, so that's uh, very powerful imagery here. It's a very powerful image in the Vesamis. The, the ribbon was red. And when the goat fell off the mountain, so the red ribbon turned into white. So I know why white is tar, that we know, right? Tar, uh, cleanliness, base color, you know, so many. White is obvious, but why is red sin? Though many cultures, it really is sin, but how did it become that way? So uh, some, like the Redox, suggests that it's just, there's nothing inherent about red. It's just red is the color you can see from the furthest. I don't know if it was, uh, if it was uh, optically correct, maybe you could tell us whether <laughs> optically that's correct. <laughs> Whatever the doctor asked me, but, you know, that green and red part of the test, like, get all nervous. It's a trick, like, you know, you know, you know diagnosed me being blind, I'm not smart enough to get it, like, I check myself out. So, so I'm afraid to see sharper or deeper, I don't know what, but all of a sudden, red becomes, according to the redoc, because you see it from afar. Um, according to the redoc, at least from the person's standpoint, scarlet letter, becomes an issue of self-awareness. The person who sins has a high degree of self-awareness, high degree of shame, feels like people are looking at them, or just doesn't want to rear their head. So there's nothing inherent about red. It's more just the 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 um, personification of the emotions that person's feeling. It's like, I, I, it's personified. I feel embarrassed because I feel like everyone's looking at me, or at least if they would know that I feel embarrassed, I'm finding a secret, and if I don't want people to know about that secret, and it's glaring, it's obvious, it's it's um, visible. She's feeling you're embarrassed. Could be she's feeling embarrassed. It's the color of blood. And I think I think most people probably associated red with passion because at least the passions of the flesh, the passions of the physical body, are built into the collection of blood, and many of the physiological uh, reactions to hate are associated with hunger and you know uh, more blood flow. And um, but certainly in many many cultures, red was always seen as the so much so that the poor apple was victimized. How was the apple victimized? <laughs> Because there are a lot of different tales in Chazal about what the, what the fruit of the first tree was. But none of them say it was an apple. <laughs> it was either a fig or, or wheat or an esrog or grapes or something. But no one says it was an apple. And Christianity took an apple, made it the fruit that Eve gave to Adam, the gave to Adam, and all the porches it was portrayed that way. And all of a sudden everyone looks at an apple and can't help it. Every time my wife gives me an apple, I start shaking inside. You know, don't give me the apple. Who knows? <laughs> Poor apple, it's a simple shukin apple, and see the apple, you know, nothing wrong with it. So, because it's red. And red is always the uh, the color of chait. So it's not something which, the association between chait and red is not something which is obvious. I don't think there's, there's simple solutions to it. I'll throw it out there if you have any ideas. You can, the embarrassment, the distance, obvious, uh, you know, material pleasure and pulling the blood. But Yeshaya certainly picks up on this, and which Barco promises to whiten it either like the snow or like the cleansed wool. The interesting part is the chunavni vachacha. Hashem says, let's, let's litigate. So, on the one hand, it, it reminds us that this is and sometimes we feel a little lost in all the larger meta themes of the day, and the day of Malchus, and the day of Gula, and the day of Amisrael, and we lose some of the Specter of fear that Akash Baruch was deciding our fate, and that's not a simple, black and white, obvious conclusion. And certainly, Rosh Hashanah in many places today has become the. I took, I think, I spoke to you a couple of years ago, maybe last year, about the balance between fear and happiness and awe and majesty. And in some places, that balance is being taken to areas that I'm not comfortable with, and probably others are comfortable with it. We walk into certain yeshivas in Rosh Hashanah. 
mimics or resembles some hastara and there's hakafos and people on each other's shoulders and dancing and who knows what. And, and um, you know, I, I think they're certainly emphasizing the, the simcha of Rosh Hashanah and the simcha of being with the British Baruch I think it should be muted, muted that's why we don't say hello. Um, my son goes to McCarthy. <laughs> so at the high school. So they're, they're known for some of their stops and gimmicks. So evidently, uh, the Rebbe at one point told them that one of the signature band in Europe known for his gimmicks was Yom Kippur time board at a full table of delicious food and challenged his Hasidim to eat and the Siyakarish Baruch were not eating so if you want to make it very clear how committed they were to fasting in Yom Kippur which in our day would see as a gimmick or a stunt that are really not necessary or maybe it was Hasidim who that for him and it was as you know I think our food is beyond that quite honestly not for a, for a plate of cookies as good as they look on the middle of the face matters in Kippur I think any of us would even have a hobby it would be like a Sophomore is the word, the amateur hour. But he did it in those days, who knows? You know, some of the original Hasidim that congregated could have been drunks and homeless. And they, you know, t- today Hasidim are people that are very from and learn a lot. And those days there were hobos and vagabonds and people from the streets. So, you know, they always say they get hungry, but they haul back in a Kurdish barco, like how great they are. So I'm telling my son, tell me that. Last year, you know, Kippur, a couple of the kids actually did that. They got a lot of food before in Kippur, they came in. Okay, so whether you think it's appropriate or something more, but no, it's just not Yom Kippur. You, know, you don't start playing tricks and games in Yom Kippur. Right? So when you're standing in front of a Kurdish Baruch, they say it's a levity. You feel like Yom Kippur. So the Chodim Yavacha restores, that's a levity. And so, okay, it's a Yom at the end. The sign of Yom Kippur is a Yom Yom. And the Sifra Chayim Mason Tukim. And we don't say Halal not because it isn't a day of Simcha. We don't say Halal because it's a day of muted Simcha. We don't just go around and acting, and then obviously Yom Kippur, we, we change the decibel level a little bit, Rosh Hashanah has its own balance, Yom Kippur has its own balance, and it's, it's important, it's important like you're all starting families, it's, it's not easy to, to create that balance around the table, where, you know, Yom Kippur shouldn't be, uh, Rosh Hashanah should not be Tishabah, and through the Yom Kippur shouldn't be Tishabah either, Tishabah should be Tishabah, so what is Tishabah like in your home, and what's you know, Rosh Hashanah like in your home, and what's Yom Kippur like in your home, and, well, for sure, we talk about it at the table, you know, everyone will be talking about mournful, solemn, you know, okay, what was your favorite part of the diet? You know, people have to also enjoy and be with each other. On the other hand, there's a certain frivolous talk, which may be appropriate under normal conditions, which is inappropriate in Rosh Hashanah, and you know, Kippur, so you want to, you know, you want to, you don't want to have the time as deep, or not talk to your husband and your children, you know, to be there for each other, but also it's not a day just to be stopped talking, you come, you go, you dive, and you, you, you spend the day with your Rabbi Shalom. Reminds us of that sense of, of Yom Adin. Okay, look at Rashi. Yachar ani v'yatem. Let's get together for litigation. Peneta, source number Aleph. Misarach al-mi. Who sinned against him? Well, let's, let's actually have an accountant. Luchon Hashem is actually our litigant here. So any of the Pesukim, Hashem is our father, Hashem is a redeemer, Hashem is a cloud maker, Hashem is not just a cloud maker, redeemer, and snowfall. It's not just for us to eat. For us to eat, it's not our litigant here. Luchon Avani Vachar. But then the Pasuk turns, and you have to have a Kashanim, Kashel Gyalbino, in Yadimu Chatola, Katsemer Yihiyu. So it's that turn that captures the interests of Chazal. How could it be such a quick turnaround from a Kodesh Baruch Hu as litigant to a Kodesh Baruch Hu as snowmaker, Kodesh Baruch Hu as fleece cleaner? It's such an abrupt turnaround. Let's let the Pasuk finish. Lechun Abri Bachacha, Mali Chataychem, Ami Yisrael, why did you sin? And then, Salachti uh, Hashem, some phrase while Hashem is coming in and redeeming. It's such a quick turnaround. It's almost as if the non sequitur who was sitting at the table like that. It would be very odd. You know, you'd say something, you know, curt to your husband and say, I love you. It just, you know, you wait a second. And it's okay. I'm a little upset. You did something, whatever. But, uh, 
It's all right. Right in the middle of the sentence, the Chuna Vivaracha, something happened in the middle of that sentence that turned Akash Parfus tell. What turned Hashem's tell? So according to Source Dalits of Gemara and Shabbos, Darash Rafa, Maidichsif, the Chuna Vivaracha Yamar Hashem. So, Blessed Lavo, line number three, Yom Olam HaKadosh Baruch Hu L'Yisrael, Hashem will tell Am Yisrael, Nuchuna Yitzalavu Seichem, go to your parents, V'yochichu Eschem, and don't rebuke you. So, this Gemara is sensing the word L'chul. Why does it say L'chul? It should say Bo. Hashem's quote, I'm calling him, saying Bo, here, come. I'm not going to say go. Go means go at a distance, go somewhere else. Hashem is telling us, go to your parents and they'll charge you because you embarrass them. You're lifestyle deviated from their precedent. Go to Avram, go to Yitzchak, go to Yaakov, and, and go to the Imals, and they'll really rebuke you. L'chuna Yitzchak Boseichem, line three, v'yochichu eschem. So what do we say back to Hashem? We have an answer. Yom Levonav, Rebona Shalom, Yitzchak Minenech, who should we go to? Yitzchak Avram? That's who you want us to go talk to? Lord B'Kei Shalayna Rachem, you told him about Mitzrayim and about the Gauls, he didn't have him for us. You think he cares about us? Yitzchak Yitzchak, line number five. You want us to go ask advice from Yitzchak? Shabir Chazesav? Give a bracha to Esav? Look how much hardship he caused us. Stupid little bracha gave Esav 2,000 years in Christianity. You want you think Yitzchak is going to be happy with us? It's a Yaakov? You want us to go to Yaakov? Shemar Talana, you told him also about Mitzrayim. He didn't daven for us? Second to last line. It's a Minelech. So basically he's a crocodile tears, you know. <laughs> basically making believe we're helpless. You want us to go to our fathers, they can help us out. They could care less about us. They're too busy. Hashem says, okay. I want to have a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Hold it to Lisa and Since you have no one else to rely on but me, I'll help you out a little bit. It's a game. It's a courtship. It's that we build, you know, how we tease people we love and create warmth and closeness and I only have you. Of the, maybe I should go to that person. Oh, that person, well, I need you. Or, this is a conversation. It's their vastity. Again, everyone's play-acting, of course. Shem wants to see if we'd run to Avram. They say, okay, they're really not interested in me. She's saying, go to Avram. He's hoping for us not to go to Avram. Oh, we're not really angry at Avram. Avram did a lot of great things to the Jewish people, Simon of the Akeda. This is all just part of the courtship and part of the conversation. Oh, you want us to go to Avram? A lot of good he's going to be. Yitzchak, what do we have to hope for in him? He's blessing Esau. You know, that one thing that he did that was slightly, slightly in our, you know, against our interests. And Yaakov, what should he have done? Of course he died in front of me, so. I don't mean to say Shuvah is a game, but Hirsh Baruch Hu wants us to need him. And we have to reach the point where it's about Anochi, Anochi, which is a Pasuk I quoted before. Then Hashem says, oh, I told you to go, but you're not going anywhere? That's exactly what I want. In Yuchatechem, Kashanim, Kashel, Galbinu, In Second part is extremely relevant, especially for this year. Source number eight. Three times Hashem started to you know, roll up his sleeves and, and then started judging the Jewish people and finding their faults and punishing them. Hashem's rolling up his sleeves, about to give it to us. And then what happens? You're probably too young. <laughs> My father rolled up his sleeves and gave it to me. You probably don't know what I'm talking about. I come from the old generation. You know. I saw that long sleeve. <laughs> Second of all, they really gave it to us. So they're very raw, you know, they're too pure. You know, we really get it. It's like Hashem was rolling up his sleeves and he's going to give it to us. The Samchum Mosa Olam. The Amru. 
And the Ummah Sa'alam was starting to, to rejoice, it's starting to be thrilled. Klum inan yechalim fakachim baram. We can't beat them, we can't beat the, their God. Achshab, and now he's taking care of them for us. He's going to destroy them. He's going to put an end to this terrible little people called the Jews. And wipe the Zionist regime off the face of the earth. And I said, oh, Hashem says, whoa, this is not your, you're not invited to this party. I was about to punish the Jewish people. But the second that you start to take pleasure, the second that you start to join the party, you start to be happy, it's not going to happen. Hashem says, I'm going to forgive the Jewish people. Hashem sees how happy the nations of the world are, the prospect of Jewish suffering, licking their chops. Oh, you're licking your chops. I have something in store for you, Hashem says. Hashem turns the whole Pasuk positively. So all the time when the world starts aligning, lining up at the Zionist regime and the Jews and wipe over the face of the earth, that's a good thing to happen before you give her. Even if HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't plan on forgiving us and the legation began and the Gizar Din was not so favorable, all of a sudden the Jad in Iran is starting to lick his chops and telling us what he's going to do to us. Don't worry, Hashem hears about that also. And it can really affect Yom Kippur. We're very happy that it has a positive effect on Yom Kippur. We're happy it's happening, but you know, who knows why it's happening, but don't be so scared that Yom Kippur is actually enhanced by it was all being thrilled that maybe God is going to deal with the people, the, the heathen, the infidels, are now rejecting Allah, you know, all of a sudden they're starting to mimic us and denigrate us. That's going to be a very strong party. I'm not going to get to part four because it's a little late, but I'll just tell you something that Amitel said um, a couple of Yom Kippur's ago. Which I was thinking about when I said it's Medish. I was crying, it was 2003, which was 30 years after the Yom Kippur War, and there were eight boys who died from the Shiva Yom Kippur War. He was saying, you know, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu allow Am Yisrael to set an Isim in the flow? So we reversed the course of the war, and all of a sudden, a war that started off with us such so disadvantaged and so leveraged and outmaneuvered, we were able to be victorious. So he said three things, I forgot one of them. He was crying, crying, almost like a baby. He said, number one, the fact that Eight boys went from this base medish to their death, and the boys that left to go to the battlefront knew they were going to die because the Egyptians and the Syrians had surprised Israeli army. We just have to throw waves of human shields at the advancing tanks to slow them down so that we could regroup in the back and send the reservists off to war and you know, relaunch our own battle. And they knew they were going to die. I mean, they knew they were going to, the, to their death. It wasn't they were going to war, they were going to death. And that eight people from the Yeshiva died. The Kiddush Hashem, Rabbi Tal said, um, is the reason that. You know, uh, the, the, you cannot defeat Am Yisrael when Am Yisrael has this chutz of Kiddush Yom Shemayim. In fact, there's so much Kiddush Shemayim of the Yom Kippur War, means that's a war that Am Yisrael couldn't lose. And the second thing he said is, they think that they could leverage and manipulate Kiddush Yom Kippur to their advantage. They thought they could catch us by surprise because it's Yom Kippur. Chaz B'Shalom B'Achil Hashem. That couldn't happen in Shemayim. That they were going to surprise Am Yisrael and victor over Am Yisrael because it's Yom Kippur. The chutzpah, they could think they could use Yom Kippur. Like, you know, at least be smart. You know, at least be smart. He was trying to avoid Yom Kippur. Okay, he needs some bad month. He needs some terrible month. Got to find a month out there. Yeah, at least, you know, a little Rahmanas. Haman was a smart guy. He wasn't going head to head. These Arabs, you know, were attacked on Yom Kippur. They're going to use Yom Kippur again. <laughs> yeah, at least be smart. Can't use Yom Kippur against Am Yisrael. So this matter which reminded me, Hashem is, what a game with the Jewish people. It's a private affair, you're not invited. You want to come and be part of it and say, all of a sudden you're going to prognosticate about the end of the Jewish people. Hashem says, you know what? Slow down. In mid-passing. 
forget those plans. I'm shelving those plans. It's a very interesting passage because it really shits right in the middle. Okay, so I'll message that we'll say the fourth passage for some other time.